Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. We're so blessed that you could join us today. And we are going to be continuing today in the book of Matthew in our study about the Samika of Jesus, the boyhood of Jesus, and, and how that relates to uh, Him being our Savior, Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, all of the the training that he went through. We are studying about the boyhood, about his upbringing, and we are receiving some revelation on scriptures that uh, you've probably read hundreds of times, but through this study, we're opening our spiritual eyes and seeing them for their true truth. The truth that, that the Holy Spirit has been revealing for 2,000 years, but unless you study the root meaning and the actual background of the culture and things that were going on, it's been hidden. But we are in the state now of revelation. Some people think that we are actually beginning to live the book of Revelation. So why aren't we seeing these things in the true light for which they've been hidden for 2,000 plus years. I'm telling you, when I started studying this, these scriptures just came open to me. And when I backed them up with research, I just had to share it. And that's what we're doing today. Amen. Let's go to the Father with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come this day before you, before your throne of grace and of mercy, that we can not only have mercy, but find grace that helps in our time of need. Father, have your way with this broadcast. Have your way with this Bible study. Have your way with our life, that in all things we can live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. We ask now that you send the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us through these scriptures, that what will be revealed will be the truth. For thy word is truth, Father. And in Jesus' name, we thank you and praise you. Amen and amen. Glory to God. Join me in our confession of faith, commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed. We want to lay this solid foundation. I mean, this is 
a revelatory study. I guarantee, I guarantee this study is going to change how you view certain passages of Scripture. I guarantee it because it did me. It completely changed my outlook on these Scriptures and, and made the Bible come alive even more. Amen. So let's lay this foundation. Just repeat after me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. But the third day he rose again from the dead. I believe, oh, and he now sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, amen, from where he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory to God. All right, we're going to recap just a little bit to catch everybody up. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you see Jesus going up on what's called, well, I'll just tell you what it says. Let's go read verses 1 and 2. Seeing the multitudes, he went up onto a mountain. And when he was set down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And this has become what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why were multitudes of people following Jesus? Why did he have to go up onto the side of the mountain to teach? Because there's so many people he couldn't teach on a level plane, like down in the streets. So he had to go up onto a mountain where his voice would carry and everyone would be able to hear him. Why are so many people following Jesus? Well, Brother Bob, he's the Son of God. Yes, he is. Well, they've seen the miracles, and they wanted to see miracles too. Well, that's part of it. But remember, this is where he's just first starting out. Okay? His sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. You can see that over in Matthew chapter 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his sermon. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was that such a popular message? Well, that's what we're going to be studying. Okay? But why were multitudes following him? That's a mystery, right? Not when, you, when we finish this study you'll understand why the multitudes were coming out to hear and see Jesus, okay? And that's what we're going to look at. And I believe, like I said, you are going to receive a revelation like never before. Some of these scriptures are just going to pop open to your spiritual eyes, and you're going to understand them like you've never understood them before. I know, because that's what happened to me. We're going to recap real quick the birth of Jesus. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it, but let's turn over to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or was like this. And 
talks about how the angel came to Mary, all right, and told her, you know, you're going to have this child. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power from the Most High God will enter into you and conceive a child. And this child is the Savior of the world. And you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua. And Mary said, okay. You know, she was young. They say probably 12, 13, maybe 14 years old at that time. But she understood scripture. Unlike the birth of John the Baptist, when uh, the angel appeared to Zacharias, Zacharias was questioning, well, how can this happen? You know, my wife hasn't had, she's, we haven't had a kid yet. Now she's really old. I'm old. How, how's this going to happen? The angel just shut their mouth up, so he quit speaking negative. Mary, every girl brought up in Jewish society to the time they were married knew that a virgin would at one point in time be selected to be the mother of the Messiah. And now this angel's appearing to Mary and says, God has chosen her. And she said, okay. Be it done unto me according to your word. As you have spoken to me, may it be done. I yield myself to God. I am the maidservant of the Most High. And I believe at that moment, without hesitation, that's when Jesus was conceived. Before she could change her mind, before she could go home and talk to people and get talked out, it was done. And then... The angel told her, now go see your cousin, Elizabeth. She is six months pregnant already and has been hiding it. And when Mary walked in, you know, we can read about how, you know, the baby John leaped in his mother's womb and Elizabeth started to prophesy, then Mary started to prophesy and says she stayed there for three months. And then it goes into the birth of John, which was right about the time Mary left. So I believe Mary was there for the birth of John, seeing the miracle of Zacharias when he said, no, his name is John, seeing his mouth loose, his, his lips loose, his tongue loose, so that he could start speaking again. He started praising God, started sharing about what was going on. And Mary left, empowered now, with an understanding that this is the day and the hour that the Messiah was going to be born. And she was carrying the Messiah of Jesus, of the Jews, of the Hebrews, in her womb. And she went back and told Joseph. Or Joseph may have found word because Mary left and was going to Nazareth. And come to find out, you know, he gets word that doesn't say how. Either she told him or he heard it that Mary is three months pregnant. Which means she could be stoned to death. Mary knew if she would became pregnant and had not yet, cons uh, what's the word I'm looking for, consummated the marriage. You know, to be betrothed was legally being binding to Joseph she was his wife. They just had not consummated the marriage. That day was coming. But now she's pregnant. 
before the final festival of the marriage. Joseph respected Mary, loved Mary so much that he was going to decide to put her away privately because if he made it public, she would be stoned to death. And the angel came to Joseph and said, No, 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 no. Joseph, take Mary as your wife because the, the baby she's carrying is the Messiah of Israel put there by the Most High God. And you'll, she'll give birth. You'll call his name Jesus, Yeshua. And he will be the Savior of his people, taking the throne in David's place. And Joseph, an honorable man, said okay. And the Bible says he did not consummate his marriage to Mary until after the baby was born. And then we can read about how everything worked together for the perfect timing because they had to go back to Nazareth to register for their taxes. And while there, I'm, th I'm sorry, not Nazareth, Bethlehem. They had to go back to Bethlehem to register for their taxes because that's the city of David. Joseph was in the lineage of David. Now Mary was his wife. So they had to go register. And the Bible says while there, there was no room for them in the inn. So they had to give birth to the baby out in a stable. Now, there's some misteaching going on with that. That, you know, the innkeeper was rude and all that. Now, Everybody was going to their hometowns, their, their ancestral towns to register. There's a lot of people going all over Israel at this time. Joseph had to take his time because Mary was pregnant, probably riding on a donkey, but it doesn't say, but he had to take his time because that's a grueling road. They finally get there and all the guest rooms are full. All the hotel rooms are full. There's no room. There's no vacancy in the hotel. But having compassion, the innkeeper said, well, we got a stable. You can stay out there in the stable. Okay, at least you'll be out of the elements because this is cold. You know, Jesus was not born in April. They're saying probably somewhere in September. But either way, we know... Let me back that comment up a little bit. Some people say in September, but we know he was born at exactly the moment God wanted him born. There's the festival of booths is in the fall. And they're saying that is when Jesus was born. Somewhere in the fall. But that's not the study today. We want to talk about the boyhood of Jesus. Now, while in the stable, Mary gave birth. They returned back to Jerusalem, dedicated the baby, and then they went and lived in Nazareth. The two years later, the Bible talks about in... Uh, where am I here? Well, Matthew chapter 2. The three wise men come from the east. They go straight to the palace. Say, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? 
Herod was so insecure with his throne and his rulership, he even killed his own children to make sure that they didn't try and kill him to get the throne. And now here's these strangers coming, asking, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his sign in the stars in the east. And he asked the wise men, and they said, well, it says to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures say. So he told them, Bethlehem, but when you find him, come back and tell me so I could come worship him. What he really wanted to do was kill him. And the wise men came. They found Jesus in the house, not in the barn, not in the stable. So this is two years later because we can tell that because that's when Herod makes the decision to kill all the babies in that area two years and under. So we know this is about almost two years after Jesus was born. These wise men provide frankincense, gold, and myrrh to Joseph and Mary and for the baby Jesus. God is providing supernaturally, brought these wise men all the way from the east and gave them what some scholars have calculated the equivalent of about two to three million dollars in today's value. Just gave it to them. God's providing Mary and Joseph all the money they're going to need to raise Jesus properly. Right? That's what this was. This was a gift for them to take care of the Son of God. Now, after that, Herod makes the decision he's going to kill every baby in that area two years and under. The angel tells Joseph, flee to Egypt. Wait there until I call you. That fulfilled the scripture that he was coming out of Egypt. Later, Herod died. Angel reappeared to Joseph in a dream, said, okay, the, the one who wanted to kill you is dead. It's okay to go back into the promised land now. Joseph brings him back in. Doesn't say how long, but he's, we can calculate out about 18 months or so. So now Jesus is between three or four years old. And he's living in Nazareth. And he's being taught the first part of his upbringing. You see, we don't know what the boyhood of Jesus was really like. The Bible talks to us about when he was 12 years old. Doesn't say anything up till that point in time. And after it talks about when you know uh, they went to the to Jerusalem for the festival, and they got ready to leave, they thought Jesus was playing with some of his friends or something. Was with the caravan. They went one day's journey, didn't see him. They looked all over. So the next day they go back, and the third day they found him in a temple. After that, we don't have any other information till Jesus shows up for the baptism by John in the River Jordan. What happened during those years? That's what we're going to study. All right? What happened between birth and 12 and 12 and age 30 when he was baptized by John? Since the Bible is silent on this, we have to look at the culture of that time and see what most of the Jewish boys were doing those years. Now, every Jewish boy wanted to grow up to be a rabbi. Every one of them. 
well, probably not 100%. We'll say 90% of them wanted to grow up and be a rabbi. Okay, Kind of like the Little League baseball teams and football teams that you enroll your youth in. If you ask most of those kids what they want to do when they grow up, they'll say, I want to play baseball, or I want to be a football player, or I want to be a basketball player as a professional athlete. And that's how it was with these Jewish boys in that day. They wanted to be a rabbi. Because rabbis were cool. It'd be so cool to be a rabbi. You got the respect of everyone in town, and you get to teach people about the Word of God, which was back then the Torah and the prophets. They were able to help the priests out when they needed help. But for the most part, they were the ones who interacted with the people, the common people, on a regular daily basis. So it was just cool to be a rabbi. So the question is, how do you become a rabbi? Amen. Well, the qualifications for being a rabbi were quite stringent back in those days. And it started almost immediately after birth for the boys. With a special emphasis starting just as soon as they could understand speech and begin to speak themselves. Mama, dada, water, stuff like that. And it's the fathers of the house who are the ones tasked with teaching their boys about God's laws and his word, especially the book of Leviticus. Why the book of Leviticus, Brother Bob? Well, the first step in becoming a rabbi was by age six, they had to have memorized the entire book of Leviticus and be able to recite it word for word, verbatim, without error. If they could do that, then they were admitted to what we would call elementary school, but the proper name for the school was Bet Safar. Bet Safar. S-A-F-A-R. If they could not recite the entire book of Leviticus completely through without error, then they were cut and sent home and told to learn the family trade because you don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. Now, can you imagine what that felt like at six years old? You get up there and you start, oh, man, I messed that up. And they say, sorry, son, go home. You're cut from the rabbi team. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But that was the custom and traditions of that day. You either made the team or got cut from the team. There was no second chances. There was no, well, you did good up to that last sentence. You know, I mean, that's not to say that every now and then something like that occurred. But for the most part, if you made a mistake, they would just stop you because it takes a long time to recite the book of Leviticus word for word. So as they're going through, if you messed up, this is stop. You're cut. Goodbye. All right. How many of you have ever been cut from the team before? How many of you have ever played sports, maybe in co-ed or you know in gym class or out on the playground during your school years and we're putting together a kickball team or whatever and let's let's pick sides and they get two captains and each one starts picking you go i go you go i go they get all the way down and you're the last one and well we already have enough players sorry you know you're not playing today we don't think you're good enough anyway that's why you're last you know how bad that makes you feel well it's the same thing with them back in Jesus' day. You either passed the test or you went home. Amen. 
if a Jewish boy passed the test, was able to recite completely from memory, without error, the entire book of Leviticus at age six, then they were admitted to the Bet Safar, which actually means school of the book. And like I said, the book is actually the Torah, the first five books of the Bible for us, uh, but it consisted of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, from age 6 to age 12, they are attending Bet Safar. They were learning now how to memorize all five books of the Torah. Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were learning how to memorize all five books, word for word, without error. And it took them from age 6 to age 12 to do it. So that's what they spent their time doing during those six years of what we would call elementary school. And when it came time for the graduation test, they were brought in front of the rabbis, and they had to recite all five books of the Torah without error. If they failed, then they were cut from the team. They were sent home to learn the family business and they could not continue on with their rabbi training. There were no second chances. There was no retakes on the test. There was no extra credit they could do to, to you know, get up their score up to 100%. They were either able to do it or not. If not, they were cut from the team because they only wanted the absolute best and brightest and smartest kids to be rabbis. That's the reason for it. That's the reason it's so harsh. Now, if you were able to do that, then you could graduate from what we would call elementary school. Because now you would be able to try out for the next team. Once you graduated from elementary school, from the Bet Safar, by memorizing the complete book of Leviticus, now, I'm sorry... Back that up. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Once you memorize the first five books of the Bible, Torah, the Torah, word for word, you could try out for the next school, which is a combination of like high school and college. This school is called the Bet Talmud, or School of the Talmud. It's the entire books of the Old Testament. Uh, it's basically the rabbi school. Okay? But just because you graduated from the Bet Safar by memorizing the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, did not mean you were automatically in at the Bet Talmud. No, you had to pass another test to be selected to go to the Bet Talmud. Well, what was the test? You had to pass a test concerning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Oh, wait a minute, Brother Bob. Didn't they just pass that test to graduate elementary school? Yes, they did. They had to have memorized it to graduate from elementary school, from the Bet Safar. To be admitted to the Bet Talmud, they had to not just have passed from the Bet Safar test, but now they had to be able to carry on a conversation using the scriptures. They had to be able to ask and answer questions, pertinent questions to the scriptures to give, to demonstrate they had an understanding 
of the scriptures. Not just memorization, but that they understood what they were saying and able to carry on a conversation around the scriptures to get their point across. Amen. That is how they were able to enter the Bet Talmud. Amen. And then they went into this special room and told to wait there. Now the Bet Talmud went from age 12 to age 30. And they would graduate at age 30 and become a rabbi. Yes, Lord. Jesus, well, let's do this. There's five stages in the Bet Talmud, the school of the disciple. And you would take these tests at each of the stages between age 12 and age 30. And this school, like I said, it lasted 18 years. And you, if you were there, you're sitting in this room with these other boys. You'd pass the test. You were able to demonstrate you had a basic understanding of the Talmud. And now, here come these brand new rabbis. They had just graduated from rabbi school. Well, a rabbi needed a follower. They needed disciples. Where else could they get pre-vetted disciple followers than the Bet Talmud? And they would go in and they would, you know, ask questions and, and you know, what are your interests and, and you know... It, it's a bad example, but let me, let me relate it to college today. If you want to be a medical doctor, you don't go to a lawyer school. If you want to be a lawyer, you don't go to a business school. If you want to be a businessman, you don't go to medical school. Okay? You, specialize, you specialize in what it is you want to study. And so it was with these boys sitting in this room being interviewed by these brand new rabbis who are looking for followers. So they would ask questions and then they would say, okay, well, you, you know, my teaching is going to be on economics or my teaching is going to be on biblical history or my teaching is going to be on you know, business management, or my teaching is going to be on whatever the case may be. And they say, you follow me, and you follow me, and you follow me, and you follow me, and you follow me. And then they leave. Next guy comes in, and the process repeats itself. And for the next 18 years, that's what they study. Now, the law says you can only teach what your rabbi teaches you. That is how the traditions are carried from one generation to the next. The book of Acts, when uh, Paul was being uh, grilled by 
the Hebrews, remember, uh, they were going to, they, they caught him in the temple. They thought he was bringing Gentiles into the temple area and, and, uh, the centurion came down, rescued him, was taking him up in the prison. They were up on the steps. Paul said, let me talk to the crowd. And he started talking. He said, I was, I'm Hebrew of the Hebrews. So I've been brought up in the ways of Gamaliel, right? Gamaliel is like one of the great rabbis of that day. And Paul was a disciple of his. That's what he's trying to say. I am a disciple of Gamaliel. I mean, I know the scriptures. I know Hebrew law. I know all about this. I was brought up in the traditions of Gamaliel. So he's saying Gamaliel is the one who taught me. He was my rabbi. And he said that as, a, as emphasis of he knew what the law said. Amen. He knew the scriptures. And you can tell that from his different writings. But the point I'm trying to make is once you were selected to follow this particular rabbi, you were obligated by law. That's what you could study. And when you graduated rabbi school, that's the only thing you could teach. There were no dual doctorates. There were no, you know, going back to school again to relearn a different uh, tract or method. You learned what your disciple taught you, and your disciple, uh, not disciple, your rabbi taught you, and that rabbi could only teach what he had been taught by his rabbi, who had been taught by his rabbi, who had been taught by his rabbi, as it goes on back. That kept that train, that teaching concept pure and it continued the traditions from of old down to the new disciples who were now being taught by their rabbi well when all the disciple or i'm sorry all of the rabbis the brand new rabbis who just graduated when they had finished picking their followers you know they went in that room and said do you follow me you follow me you follow me whoever was left Whoever had not been selected by a rabbi, let's say there's a group of 15 or 20 of them left. The rabbi would walk in, the, the senior rabbi, and say, Sorry, boys, you weren't selected. You are now cut from the team. Go home. Even though they passed the test for graduation from elementary school, the Bet Safar, even though they were able to carry on a conversation for the Bet Talmud and be selected to go into that room and have a shot at the professional draft, you know, you got the NBA draft and the Major League Baseball draft and, and the NFL draft, and some people don't get drafted. That's what happened here, or would happen here. Some of the boys would not be drafted. And they were sent home, heartbroken. All they wanted was a rabbi to say, follow me. And their dream of being a rabbi would be one step closer to realization. Now, that's what happens in order to be selected to be a disciple of a rabbi. And I want to also emphasize that baptism did not start with John. I mean, the next time we, we hear about Jesus is at 
from age 12, the next time we hear about Jesus is at the baptism of John. But let's back up for just a second at age 12. Jesus at age 12. All right. We see, you know, again, the story is the parents, you know, they're up at the festival. They leave. They travel the whole day thinking Jesus is playing with some of his friends with the caravan. At night, they start looking for him. They realize he'd been left behind. Next day, they travel a whole day's journey back to Jerusalem. They get there. It's probably late. The next day, they find him in the temple. And the Bible, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about Jesus being in the temple? It says that he is answering questions and asking questions. And that he's amazing the priests that are there. Amen? Trying to find it here. I think it's in Matthew chapter 7. Is that right? No. Hallelujah. Well, I think it's in... Maybe it's John. If I can't find it here real quick, you can tell that I'm just doing this from... Uh, as led by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So that's not it either. Praise God. Well, we know I'll find it, but I'm going to keep talking because I don't like silence on the radio. Amen? We know that they went up and found Jesus. Amen? Teaching or answering questions in the temple. The third day they found him there and they said, you know, how is it that you are treating us like this? And they said, like what? Don't you know I should be about my father's business? Well, what they're saying is that Jesus, and the emphasis in this, I'm trying to, trying to find it, is that Jesus was answering questions Carrying on a conversation, amen, with the priestly authorities, with the rabbis in the temple, and they were all amazed, right? They were all amazed at their at the answers and the conversation that he's able to give. Amen. And that's at age 12. We just studied. What happens at age 12? That's where you graduate from elementary school, the Bet Safar, and enter the Bet Talmud, and then you get interviewed by a rabbi who has to check you for your knowledge of the Torah, the Talmud, and that your ability to carry on this conversation. That is what Jesus was doing. Amen? That is what he was proving to them. They were amazed at his ability to carry on the conversation and asking and answering questions. Amen. And then you don't hear anything else about the, the, uh, how Jesus was raised until the baptism of John. 
And the purpose for the baptism, we, I just mentioned before we got started here, uh, baptism did not start with John the Baptist, despite a lot of traditions that, uh, that these, some churches would teach. Baptism was a common thing going on. Uh, here it is. In Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. In verse 48, let's see, no, verse 46. They found him uh, in the temple. Came to pass after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. See, this is where Jesus was answering those questions, proving he had an understanding, an understanding of the scriptures, which would make him authorized to enter the Bet Talmud and be eligible to be taught by a rabbi. Okay. He said, and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And then the mother said, why are you dealing like this with us? We've been looking for you. And he said, how is it you saw me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? In other words, at age 12, don't you understand I'd have to be here in order to go to the next level of training? Now, the scriptures don't say it, but we alluded to it. I believe part of the money that Joseph and Mary received from the three wise men went to the education of Jesus. Now, if you were one of the richest people in town, because you had millions and millions of dollars in today's value, you could hire the absolute best teachers for your son. Don't you agree? And would there be anything less uh, appropriate than to have the best teachers available in the nation of Israel to teach Jesus? And instead of having one rabbi teaching him one way, they could hire the best rabbis to do the math, another rabbi to do the English, well, it's not English, Hebrew, another rabbi to do the history, another rabbi to do... Doesn't that make sense? I submit that to you. Yes, it does. And at age 12, Jesus proved he had a complete understanding of the scriptures with the scriptures we just read in Luke chapter 2. All right. Baptism would be used at any life-changing moment uh, when you got accepted into the Bet Safari. These young boys were baptized, saying, your old life's now behind. You are now entering this school for the purpose of becoming a rabbi. If they graduated from elementary school at Bet Safar and got accepted to the Bet Talmud and then got selected to be a disciple, they were baptized. You're now leaving your old life behind. You are now in the school of the disciple, the Bet Talmud, the school of the disciple. And that would symbolize that life change. If you got betrothed to someone, okay, at the engagement, in your betrothment ceremony, you got baptized. You're now leaving your single life behind. You are now one together with your spouse, even though it was a betrothment. At the official wedding ceremony, part of it was a baptism. Baptism was commonplace. When a rabbi graduated from rabbi school at age 30, 
They were baptized. You are now a rabbi. You go down, not a rabbi. You come up as a rabbi. You are now, your old life is now separated. Your old life's now behind you. You are now a full-fledged rabbi. Amen. And then you had to go and find your followers. So go, you went back to that pre-vetted place where those 12-year-old boys had already answered all the important questions. They got an understanding of the scriptures. Now you go select your followers. Because, folks, a rabbi without followers is basically just going for a walk. Amen? He has to have followers. If you don't have followers, you're not really a rabbi. So that's why they had to get followers. And where is the best place to find followers but at the Bet Talmud? All right, age 30. The next time we hear about Jesus is when he comes down to the Jordan River to John the Baptist. Jesus walks, you know, I mean, here you see John declaring as he sees Jesus come, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's been telling them, there's one among you. You don't know who he is. But I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces because when the Pharisees and doctors of law came up and asked John, hey, what are you preaching out here? You know, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Well, who are you then? I'm just one, just a voice of one, crying in the wilderness, making straight the ways of our Lord. But I'm telling you there's one among you that you don't even know, but whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to untie. And then he's seen Jesus. He goes, there he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes down and says, I need to be baptized. Why? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Because he was now a rabbi. He had a rabbi clothes. Right? We can prove that. Uh, let's see. Go to the book of John. And we're going to see it as baptism here. Uh, John, you know, he's seeing, well, let's back. I'm, I want you to see in verse 36, looking upon Jesus, he walks in. Behold the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. And he turned and saw them follow. and said, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi. See? Jesus had the rabbi clothes on. He is a rabbi at this point in time. That's why everywhere he went, they called him rabbi. Some translations say master, which is translated as rabbi. Some say teacher, which is translated as rabbi. All right? He was a rabbi. He had on the rabbi clothes. And he came to John and said, I need to be baptized by you. And John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? What did Jesus say? Let's do this because that's how we can fulfill scripture. Because a, a rabbi had to be baptized. Amen. So Jesus is baptized by John. As he comes up out of the water, John sees the spirit of the Lord descending upon Jesus. And then Jesus led away in the wilderness for the temptation, which we're not going to get into. He returns, and what happens? Well, he comes, and in John chapter 2, no, chapter 1, uh, the disciples are following Jesus. 
And let's see where I want to find this at. Now let's go to, let's go back to Matthew. Matthew spells it out a little bit better. Do, 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 do. After the temptation, uh, he's seen, yep, chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren. And he calls Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Do you remember when I talked about a rabbi could only teach what his rabbi taught him? Do you remember when I talked about that the students could only learn what their rabbi teaches them and that they are obligated that they can only teach that thing? Okay. That is the law with one exception. Every now and then, equated about every four or five generations, a special rabbi would emerge. One that had such a complete understanding of the scriptures that he was given special authorization to make his own training system. He didn't have to follow what his rabbi taught him. He could do whatever he wanted to do. He had such an understanding of Scripture. They gave him a special authority at his graduation. And that special authority was called Samika. Samika. And in order to be recognized as having Samika, you had to have two witnesses at your graduation baptism that as you were being baptized would give a witness to the special Samika which you had. Without those two witnesses, you did not get the authorization. If you had one witness, that didn't make it. You had to have two independent witnesses. Well, who was the witnesses at Jesus' baptism. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Witness number one. Witness number two is Jesus came up out of the water. There's nobody else there to give witness. God himself, God the Father himself gives witness. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's got two witnesses. Do you remember when they came to Jesus and said, who gave you this authority? What they're saying, who gave you this Samika? Tell us, who gave you this Samika? Now, Jesus could quickly answer that and say, God the Father gave it to me. But they wouldn't believe him. So they, what does he do? He says, tell me who gave John his authority. Who gave John his Samika? Did he receive it from heaven? Or did he receive it from men? You tell me, and then I'll be able to tell you. 
And they reason among themselves and say, well, we, we can't tell. Because if they said John got it from heaven, he'd say, well, why don't you believe me then? Or if they said they got it from men, they feared the people because the people believed John was a prophet. Do you see now why Jesus used John the Baptist as his answer? Tell me where John the Baptist got his Samika from. And they were afraid to do it. And that's why Jesus didn't answer their question. If they would have said, well, we believe John got his from heaven, he says, well, John was a witness at my baptism, and the Father gave me witness also. There's my two also. But they refused to answer that question. Jesus, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. But now, did, do you see how that, how that scripture became open? That's something that most people didn't have never picked up on. Unless you're really studying the Bible. That special samika. That special authority. Now, a brand new rabbi, where does he go? He goes back to the Bet Talmud, to the pre-vetted 12-year-olds who already have demonstrated they have an understanding of the scripture. They go in and say, I want you as my disciple. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Now when we see Jesus selecting his disciples, what does he do? He goes up, he sees Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew, mending their nets, and he yells out, hey, follow me. Now they don't know who Jesus is. They may have recognized him a little bit. They probably grew up with him. Jesus probably was playing with them as they were growing up. But he realizes that they got washed out of rabbi school. They were one of those who was not selected. They had demonstrated they had an understanding of the scriptures. But they were not selected by rabbis. Simon and Andrew had been sent home to learn the family business, which was fishing. And when the, Jesus, in rabbi clothes, calls out to them from the shore, Hey, follow me! Immediately, it says, they left their nets and followed Jesus. And as they walk along a little farther, they see uh, Zebedee and John, you know, and his brother uh, working with the father on their boat, Father Zebedee on their boat. Jesus says, Hey! Follow me. And it says immediately they left their father and the boats and, and the business and followed Jesus. Why would they do that? Why would they leave their family business? Why would they leave their family? Peter was married. We know later on in scripture, uh, it talks about, you know, they went into Peter's house and his mother-in-law was sick with a fever and Jesus laid his hands on her and healed her. She got up and served them. If you have a mother-in-law, you got to have a wife. Could you imagine that conversation? Hey, uh, I, was, I got rid of the boat, and I'm going to be leaving for a while. I'll check in when I can. And she goes, Where, why? Where are you going? What's going on? He goes, well, this rabbi said, follow me. Can you imagine that conversation? It probably didn't go over well. But why would... They just leave everything. I mean, poor Zebedee, he lost his entire work crew with no notice given. All because some rabbi said, follow me, and the boys got up and left. It's 
because all they had lived for, from the time they were about two or three years old all the way up to age 12, was to hear a rabbi say, follow me. Because if a rabbi had told them at the bet at their graduation, going to the Bet Talmud, if they would have had a rabbi say, follow me, they would be rabbis. That's all they ever wanted. That's all they ever lived for. Same thing as a boy in today's society who all he wanted to do, he played football in junior high and middle school. He played football in high school. He got a football scholarship or he played on the the college football team. And now he declares himself as eligible for the draft. All he ever wanted to hear was his name called during that draft and didn't get it. So he probably goes to a tryout camp. And when the roster's posted, they're like, sorry, you know, just go home. And now he's a car salesman, an insurance salesman, or whatever. All he ever wanted was to hear some coach say, follow me. You're with us now. That's why they left everything. That's all they ever wanted to hear. To be a rabbi. And now a rabbi has called out to them, follow me. And they left everything. When Jesus calls you into ministry, you must be willing to leave everything. Amen. Everything. Everything. That's how important this calling is. Matthew, they continue walking along. It says they've seen Levi at the seat of customs. In other words, he's at his taxation booth. They're still in Galilee. Amen. Who is Matthew? Galilee is a fishing town. And Matthew, or Levi, he becomes Matthew, is sitting at the gate of custom, taxing people as they go in and out. Who is this person taxing? He's taxing the fishermen. Peter and Andrew and, and all of them, John and his brother, they paid taxes to Matthew. They hate tax collectors. They're considered the scum of the earth. What does Jesus do? He walks up and tells Matthew, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He leaves everything right there and begins to follow Jesus. He's another one who had been washed out. And in order to make a living, he became one of the most hated people in town by becoming a tax collector. Now Jesus, all he says to him, follow me. And Peter, I mean, Matthew leaves everything, Levi leaves everything, and begins to follow Jesus. I believe there was a lesson there as well. Here is this tax collector who has been imposing these high taxes on these fishermen. And Jesus is seeing if they can forgive Levi. Are they able to forgive him enough to accept him into their group? Or are they going to shun him? I don't want to associate with this tax collector. But I believe they received him. Why? Because they're so happy. They have a rabbi that will be teaching them how to become rabbis now. Amen. They're, Jesus is teaching them 
how to become their lifelong dream of being a rabbi. Just with that simple phrase, follow me. You see, Jesus had Samika. He didn't have to go to the pre-vetted building with the 12-year-old sitting there. He could do whatever he wanted to do. So he went to the Sea of Galilee to find men who knew the Bible, that knew the, the word, that had longed to hear someone say, follow me. Why? Because he didn't have time. I mean, once a, once a, a rabbi picked his disciples and said, follow me, he would, remember, they're just 12 years old. He is personally responsible for their safety, their provision, their upbringing. Jesus didn't have time to teach 12-year-olds to age 30. He did not have 18 years. He knew his time. He knew the day and hour was going to be coming rapidly when he would have to offer his own body as a sacrifice. He did not have 18 years to train these men how to be rabbis and how to do his teaching. So he went and picked older men who are already well-disciplined, who were hard workers, being a fisherman in that day and time was probably the hardest job. So he knew they were dedicated, they were hard workers, and they, he knew they had washed out of, of the Bet Talmud. So they had an understanding of the scriptures already. So as Jesus revealed scriptures to them, and was quoting scriptures to them, they would understand he was the long-awaited Messiah. Amen? That's how all this went down. Amen. Glory to God. All right. How much time we got left? Oh, man. Time went by fast again today. So he has this special Samika. Amen. The miracles, the healings that he started to do, opening blind eyes, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, all of these things were starting to advertise as word spread. Not that Jesus the healer is in town, but hey, there is a rabbi in town that has Samika. This guy has Samika. And they wanted to go see this new rabbi. Remember, it could be a hundred years or more between rabbis that had Samika. Everybody else had regular anointing. The regular non-Samika rabbis were the ones who taught in the temple and all that. Jesus, when he went into the temple... It was the rabbis who read from the scrolls. That's why it says, you know, Rabbi, if you got something to share, go ahead. And Jesus opened the scroll, the book of Isaiah, what we call the book of Isaiah, and he opened the scroll, read from it. They just didn't give that scroll. These scrolls were hand-copied scrolls, meticulous. If you opened it up to such and such a line, that dot had to be virtually in the same spot. 
That tittle had to be in the same spot on every single scroll created. So these scrolls are precious. It often took 20 years to make one scroll. If the guy writing or copying the scroll messed up, if one word was out of alignment or they forgot a comma or something, they would burn that scroll. That's how sacred and how holy these scrolls were considered. And it would take 18 to 20 years to make one copy of the scroll. Now, therefore, it was so precious, they would not just let anybody handle the scrolls. If you just walked in, because you're going to go in and listen to the teaching in the temple today, and you're, you know, Joe the fisherman, or Jack the blacksmith, they're not going to call you up to read from the scroll where you get to handle the scroll. No, that was reserved only for the rabbis. So when Jesus first went in and was asked to read from the scroll, and he was reading, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to heal the sick and all that, that's because he was a rabbi. They recognized him as a rabbi. Amen. He had rabbi clothes on. Glory to God. The woman with the issue of blood. She, when it says, you know, if I could just but touch his clothes, what she was aiming for was that rabbi cloth with the tassels on it. So if I could just touch his rabbinical clothes, I'll be healed. So everywhere he went, rabbi, what about this? Rabbi, what about this? When the word came back to J. Iris, you know, leave the master alone. Leave the rabbi alone. Your daughter's dead. Jesus basically turned around and said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of this. Have, don't fear. Just believe. I'll take care of it. Amen. So you see, he is recognized as a rabbi. Hallelujah. I'm saving something special. Something very special. But this Samika, I want to stay focused on that. Amen. Jesus' Samika allowed him to teach anything. To create his own, I'll call it a lineage, that his disciples will be required to teach. Amen. Now, Remember the woman caught in adultery? <laughs> they brought her and threw her down at Jesus' feet and asked Jesus, he said, the law says she needs to be stoned. What do you say? Why did they ask Jesus that? What do you say? It's because he had this special samika, right? Okay, I'm going to share this with you because I, I can't... I can't make sense of it until you understand this. Having this Samika, and then we're going to close. Having this Samika means Jesus could create his own line of teaching. Do you remember when I said that the line of teaching that a rabbi would teach his disciples was only, it was limited only to what? that disciples or that rabbi's rabbi taught him. 
on back. The, his rabbi taught him, his rabbi taught his rabbi, his rabbi taught his rabbi that taught his rabbi. All the way back till they got to one that had Samika that came up with that line of teaching. Amen? To have Samika means you can do your own thing. That's why Jesus didn't have to go to the pre-vetted area. He went to the Sea of Galilee. He picked his own disciples, hardworking fishermen, and that's why he just said, follow me. Same thing that rabbis were telling the children, the 12-year-olds, follow me, and now they are disciples of that rabbi. Okay. The line of teaching that a rabbi would teach, that line of teaching, The Greek word for it is yoke. Yoke. Jesus, his yoke was his line of teaching. And what was the main thing Jesus taught? Well, John 3:16, for God loved the world. So much he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Elsewhere he said God is love. His yoke was the love of God. That is what Jesus was teaching. The love of God, that God loved the world so much he gave his only son as the sacrifice as a lamb of God to pay the sin debt of the world. That is the yoke of Jesus. That is what his disciples were limited to teaching. You don't hear them coming up with all these weird things. They taught Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and him crucified. And that he was dead, buried, and raised. From, God honored his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he's coming soon to judge the living and the dead. That is the yoke of Christ. That's the only thing Jesus taught his disciples. As a disciple of Christ, that's the only thing you can teach. Now as we get ready to close, when they brought that woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, and they said, the law of Moses says she needs to be stoned. What do you say? Isn't that what they asked Jesus? And it says Jesus went down and wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. I have a feeling that he wrote something about Samika. I have Samika. And then... He, they thought they had him. They had him trapped because if he said, yes, she needs to be stoned according to the law, then they would say he violated his Samika about love. He violated. He's not a true rabbi. But if he said, just let her go, then he violated the law of Moses. And they got him there. They thought they had him trapped. Jesus comes up and says, you know, you are correct. The law says she needs to be stoned. But you brought her to me as a judge. Therefore, I judge her according to my Samika. 
And my Samika says, my yoke says, my teaching says, God loves her. But yes, she is guilty according to the law that you say. So my yoke is, let him who is among you without sin cast the first stone. You're the one who brought her to me to judge. That's my ruling. And now Jesus completely turned the tables on them because he was right. We turned the jurisdiction of this decision over to him. He admitted, that's what the law says. But my Samika is this. So his ruling is, only if you have never sinned can you throw the stone at her. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the, the elders threw their stones down first, Scripture says. From the oldest to the youngest. Why is that? Because the older ones realized, he got us. Daggummit, he got us. And they threw their stone down and walked away. Then Jesus says to the woman, Woman, where are your accusers? She looks around and says, There is none, Lord. He goes, They brought you to me to judge. In order to kill someone, you had to have witnesses out of the mouth of two or more witnesses. That's the only way a death penalty could be imposed. Jesus said, They brought you to me. I am to be your judge. Where are your accusers? She goes, there are none, Lord. He goes, well then, if there are no accusers, my ruling is not guilty. Mistrial. Now get up and go and sin no more. Amen? That's what Jesus is telling us today. It doesn't matter what you did in your past. Jesus is calling you to be a disciple of his. He's saying to you, follow me. Follow me. In order to do that, all you have to do is receive him as Savior. And you can do that by repeating this prayer with me and mean it from the bottom of your heart. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I know I've sinned. I know I've come short of the glory of God. But I praise God for you, Jesus. For you paid the complete price of my sins. I thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. I thank you, Jesus, that you have come into my heart. Take over my life. I want to be your child, a child of the living God, heir of God, joint heir with you of all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed in all you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.